We're in a series that we're calling What Jesus Started. And if that title seems like we're leaving something out, that's because our mission as a church is to continue what Jesus started. But we thought it'd be a good idea to spend a number of weeks looking at what he actually started that we then need to continue. And this morning we come to maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. So let me give you all a little quiz. How many of you have ever heard of John 3.16? Raise your hand. Okay, almost all of you, good. John 3.16, many of you probably memorized it. Many of you, my guess is most of you have heard it before. So here's how John 3.16 goes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now what's not to love about that verse, right? That verse is about love, God so loved, that word is about gifts, God so loved that he gave. I mean, who doesn't like love and gifts, right? And then there's hope, eternal life. We sang about hope this morning. We're longing for hope. Love, gifts, and hope. Who can't like that verse? But maybe you haven't realized that that verse actually comes in the midst of a bigger conversation. And the conversation actually took a lot longer than the two minutes it takes to read the chapter my guess is that conversation took most of a night. Rabbis love to kind of debate into the wee hours of the morning. So you can put yourself into the shoes of Jesus and Nicodemus, this rabbi who shows up, and we just have a summary of a long conversation that they had into the wee hours of the night. So take your Bibles and let's read. Uh, we're just going to read the first eight verses. We'll jump down to verse 16. And then after that, we'll go back and look at the conversation. So here's how it, how it begins. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water in the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now down to 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that famous verse, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, comes in the midst of a conversation, maybe even a debate, at least a dialogue between two rabbis kind of pushing their agenda, arguing and debating back and forth. Well, let's uh, look at the context and then we'll get to the actual conversation. The context has Nicodemus coming to Jesus. 
And the first verse tells us a few things that are important to know about Nicodemus. First of all, we're told that his name is Nicodemus. You heard me say that like five times already. The name Nicodemus, interestingly, means conqueror. Someone who wins the day, right? Someone who wins, someone who makes a way. Jesus means deliverer, someone who makes a way for others. Isn't that interesting? Right at the beginning of the conversation, here's the conqueror, someone who makes a way, having a conversation with the deliverer, someone who makes a way for others. We're then told that he was a Pharisee. Now, I know we're in a church, and you've been, many of you have been in church for a long time. Maybe some of you are new. Pharisee has connotations to us that are negative. But that was not true back in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were the most popular of the groups. They were the teachers that all the people came around and listened to. The Sadducees kind of sold out to Rome. Even though they controlled the temple, most of the people didn't want to hang out with the Sadducees. The Essenes, they were like, you know, the strange ones. They moved away from everybody and lived out in the desert because they didn't want to be contaminated. The Zealots are fighting with each other. They're trying to overthrow Rome. But the Pharisees were the good people. They were the teachers, the leaders among the people. They, they believed what the Bible said. They believed in miracles. They believed the resurrection was promised. They believed that when you die, you will be resurrected. Somehow God will provide that. The Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in resurrection. In fact, you can read in the book of Acts how Paul actually starts a debate between the Pharisees and Sadducees by raising the question of the resurrection. The Pharisees also believed that God just didn't give his word so we can know some stuff. God gave us the Bible so we can live what it says. And they tried to practice what the Bible taught. They didn't move away from people. They weren't terrorists trying to overthrow the government. They were leading lives that they thought God wanted them to lead. And they were encouraging other people to believe what God said, live as God said. They were the good guys. Do they look familiar? They're us. For the most part, they're like us. My guess is most of you, maybe many of you in the room, you believe what the Bible says. You want to live out what God says. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here unless you're kind of checking out and investigating this thing called Christianity. The Pharise it's kind of like looking in a mirror, right? And so this guy who's a Pharisee, oh yeah, one more thing. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what is that? Well, the Jews had a ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 of the highest ranking leaders, of the religious leaders of the country. There were Sadducees on the council, right? There were also Pharisees on the council. Nicodemus was on the Jewish ruling council. Not only has he kind of risen through the ranks of being a rabbi, being a teacher, being a Pharisee, he has made it all the way to like the religious supreme court in Israel. He's a really, really good guy. He's a guy that when he walked by on the street, people would love to have him shake their hand and encourage them, have him bend down and talk to the kids. Nicodemus is a really, really good guy. And he comes to Jesus, and maybe he's curious, maybe he's checking this thing out. Let's move on to the conversation, and you'll see what I mean. The content of the conversation begins very interestingly. So uh, Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He comes at night, and he says, Rabbi. Let's stop there. Rabbi. Now, rabbi is just a Hebrew way of saying teacher. 
But do you understand how radical that idea was? Here's Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a true rabbi. Not only a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin, right? He is a leader of leaders, a teacher of teachers. This guy has risen through the ranks. Jesus is an itinerant teaching nobody who represents the riffraff, right? Now, he is kind of gathering a crowd, and some of the religious leaders are getting nervous, and maybe they send Nicodemus. But here's an amazing thing. Jesus is approached by Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, this high-ranking honcho rabbi, says to Jesus, Rabbi. That would be like Albert Einstein stepping back into our context, coming up to your middle schooler who gets a C in math, and Albert saying, could you explain a few things to me? I'm kind of confused here. Here's Jesus, God himself, approached by Nicodemus, who is at the highest level, the epitome of you know, being a rabbi. He comes and says to Jesus, Professor, Rabbi, can you explain a few things to me? Now, scholars and preachers have debated for centuries what it means that Nicodemus comes at night. And to tell you the truth, I don't know. I can tell you what they fight over. Some say he came at night because he knew Jesus was really, really busy. And lots of people came to be healed. Lots of people came to hear the sermons. Lots of people came to hear the parables and share their problems. And Nicodemus didn't want to intrude and kind of disrupt the agenda. So he waited till all the crowds left. Other people say, no, 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 he came at night because he's the respected high-ranking rabbi coming to talk to a religious newcomer riffraff he doesn't do that in daylight. That would be embarrassing. So he goes at night where most people won't see him. Other people say, no, no, no. When you read the Gospel of John, darkness is often used by John metaphorically. And that's true, by the way. And so it's used metaphorically. Nicodemus comes in the night when it's dark, representing he's coming from a spiritual dark place, a moral dark place, even though he's this high-ranking official. Kind of get the idea? He comes and he says, Rabbi. But then he says two, two other things that are really important. Jesus, we know that you come from God and that God is with you. You see that? We know that you're a teacher come from God. No one could do the signs you were doing. Now, so far, if you're reading through John, Jesus has only done one sign in John, but we know he's done a lot of other signs if you read the other gospels and know what's going on. Nicodemus says, hey, we've heard of the signs you're doing, not just the one in, in chapter two. We know of the signs. And so I'm coming. We know you're from God. Only people God sends could do that kind of stuff. And we believe, I believe, God is with you. Well, Nicodemus, this highest ranking rabbi, Pharisee good guy, member of the Jewish council. He has reached the epitome of religious leadership in the country. And he says, Jesus, could you explain a few things to me? He's so together, he knows he's not completely together. You know, you have to be really together to know you're not together. You know, most of us think we're together, that just proves that we're not together. Nicodemus is so together, he knows he's not completely together, and so he comes humbly asking for an explanation. Now, before you read the next verse, and I know you know what's coming, just think about that for a minute. If you're Jesus, and you're attracting a following, and you're going to go out, and your followers are going to go, and you want them to change the world, and somebody like Nicodemus comes, 
somebody who has the right background, somebody who believes the right stuff, somebody who has a moral track record. He has it all. He even has humility. He comes to Jesus. Wouldn't you, if you were Jesus, say, Nicodemus, I'm so glad you came. I could use somebody like you. I'm going to have you be the leader of the disciples because those other guys are a bunch of goofballs, right? But I'm going to put you in. What does Jesus say to him? you got to be born again, pal. It's almost as if Jesus sends him packing. He comes with his religious credentials. He comes with his reputation. He comes with his background. He comes with his morality. He comes with his beliefs. And Jesus stops him short. It's almost as if Jesus slaps him and says, you haven't even begun yet. You need to start all over again. You need to be born again. What? Wouldn't you have welcomed somebody like this? Jesus sends him on his way, or tries to, but he won't leave. Let me show you what I mean. There are logos from two different restaurants on the board, Peter Luger's and Country Place. If you've eaten at both of those places, you know that they come from different ends of the continuum. I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying. Uh, Peter Luger's is just outside of Manhattan. It's one of the most prestigious steakhouses in the country. You need a reservation months and months ahead of time even to get a seat at Peter Luger's. And if you've ever been there, or if not, and you go, you need to slice tomatoes and onions with steak sauce. Then you need the cream spinach. Right? You need vegetables, right? If you put enough cheese in it, even vegetables are good. And here's how the menu reads at Peter Luger's, right? Everybody gets a porterhouse. Here's how the menu is. Steak for two, steak for three, steak for four. You don't have a lot of other things. Steak for two, steak for three, steak for... Pick your, make your pick. I'm hungry just thinking about it, right? And then there's Country Place, right up here on 313. And you go to country, you don't have to wait months to get in the Country Place. When I've eaten there, I didn't have to get a reservation months ahead of time. The food's good. Uh, a little different than Peter Luger's. Slightly different clientele. I've never eaten dinner there. I've been there for lunch a number of times. But Country Place and Peter Luger's, even though they're very different, have one thing in common. Neither of them take credit cards. I've already been at Peter Luger. Someone invited me. This guy must not have known that. So we had to wait for a friend of his to bring him money. We sat at the table an hour and 15 minutes waiting for the guy to get there with cash so we could pay the bill and get out. I never had to do that at a country place. But neither of them take credit cards. Now, what does that have to do with Nicodemus? Well, not a lot, actually, but I thought it was an interesting story. <laughs> now, it has everything to do with Nicodemus. Picture it this way. Nicodemus slips away from his Pharisee friends. He slips away from the other Sanhedrin members. He slips away from the other rabbis. And he goes out to Jesus. And he's got a question, a couple of questions burning in his head. Here are the questions. Jesus, how can I get to heaven? Jesus, is my background good enough? Jesus, is my morality good enough? Jesus, is my ritual rule-keeping good enough? Jesus, will you take my Jewish American Express? Will you take my moral MasterCard? Will you take my virtuous visa? And Jesus says, your card's no good here. Now, that's one thing if you're at country place and you don't have enough cash to pay for lunch. 
It's a slightly different thing if you're Peter Luger's and don't have cash or a Peter Luger's card to pay your bill. It's a whole different kind of thing when you stand before God and say, is my card good here? Is my background good enough? Is my morality good enough? Are my beliefs good enough? Is my righteousness good enough? Is what I'm bringing to the table good enough? And hear Jesus say, we don't take those cards here. Not accepted. Wow. My guess is when Nicodemus heard Jesus' answer, it was as if Jesus swung a Louisville slugger to his forehead, and it made a big crack. My guess is Nicodemus was waiting for the affirmative answer, right? After all, through his entire life, he's been patted on the back. He's been encouraged. Nicodemus, your background is beyond anybody we know. Nicodemus, your learning is impressive. Your rule-keeping and ritual-keeping, it's amazing. Nicodemus, you have the right beliefs. You believe things that we don't even know yet. Nicodemus, you have it all. And Jesus says, oh, we don't take those cards here. Not accepted. To make the point, Jesus says it this way. You can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And then he's got this really weird phrase. Unless you're born of water and spirit. Now, this is a passage lots of people like to fight about. Um, scholars and commentators, preachers, they like to fight about things that are real familiar. You have, to write, you have to write a dissertation on something, right? And so they fight about what night means, and then they love to fight about what water and spirit means. So Jesus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born of water and spirit. So let, let me give you a few of the uh, guesses. Many mothers would say, and maybe some say, I know exactly what Jesus meant. I gave birth to three children. And I know that when you give physical birth, there's water involved, amniotic fluid. And what Jesus is saying is, you've got to be born physically, and you've got to be born spiritually. And that's really profound that lots of mothers say, but that's wrong. I mean, it sounds good, but that's, that's not right. The Bible never uses those terms in that way. Other people say, no, no, no. Jesus is referring back to the earlier chapter of John when John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he says, I baptize with water, water for repentance. Jesus will come and baptize with the Spirit. You need repentance and Spirit, right? That's not right either, though. Others say, no, no, no. This verse is about us. We've got to be baptized with water and baptized in the Spirit. That's not right either because the Bible doesn't present baptism. Water baptism is essential for salvation. Some believe that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Well, what the heck does it mean then? I'll show you what it means. Remember, Nicodemus is a rabbi. He's a Jewish scholar. He knew the Old Testament better than any of us in here, better than all of us put together in here. And when Jesus says you've got to be born of water and spirit, the Rolodex, in, that's an old illustration, the Rolodex or the computer heart in, in Nicodemus's mind begins to spin, and he thinks of Ezekiel 36. Now you think water and spirit, right? Keep those words in mind. 
And let me just read to you what the prophet Ezekiel writes. Now remember, Ezekiel's writing to Jews that are in captivity, right? They're in captivity in Babylon. And they're saying, how can we return? What do we need? We, our lives are full of sin. We've been rebellious. How will we ever get to the place where God will accept us again? Here's what Ezekiel writes, speaking for God. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's what Jesus meant. Jesus is saying, you need God. Nicodemus, I'm bringing God. I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. I'm the one that brings true cleansing from sin. Water's just a picture of that. The true cleansing comes from me. Nicodemus, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put my spirit in you. Ezekiel 36 says water and spirit. That's talking about God's work, cleansing from sin and energy power for life. That's what he's talking about. And then Nicodemus knew exactly what he was talking about. The others may be interesting conclusions. This is the right conclusion. Well, what else do we have in the passage? Let's take the things we've talked about and let's condense them, right? If we condense that whole conversation that, as I said earlier, it would have lasted most of the night, we can condense all of that conversation into one simple verse. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have eternal life. Great love, great gift, and great hope. That verse is a summary of the gospel. That verse is a summary of Jesus' mission. That verse is a summary of our predicament. God so loved, that's amazing love, isn't it? He doesn't love us because we're lovable. Just look around the room. We're not that lovable. He doesn't love us because we first loved him. He says, for God so loved the world. It's not amazing because the world's so big. It's amazing God loves the world because the world's so bad. That's why it's amazing. And then the gift. What is the gift? Well, John explains it. doesn't want you to get tripped up. He gave his one and only son. You know, we need to camp there just for a minute. I know if you memorize the older translation, it says only begotten, right? The same way, one and only son. It means the same thing, one and only son. But that phrase, one and only son, looks back to what the Bible says and looks forward to what the Bible says. We don't have time to look back. I'll look at one verse with you where that same phrase shows. It shows up in John chapter 1, right? Jesus gives his one and only, John 1, 14. But I don't want to look at that one. I, I, I want to look at this one, the Hebrews verse. Yes, the Hebrews verse. In Hebrews, in the chapter about faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, that same phrase occurs. And here's what it says. By faith, Abraham... When God tested him, now look at the language, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. 
He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his, there it is, same exact words, one word in Greek, one and only son. You know how that story goes? God comes to Abraham and he's 75 years old. We have a few people here 75, 75 years old. And God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And many of you would faint. Right? You're going to have a son. Abraham and his wife Sarah are pretty excited, right? 25 years later, Abraham's now 100, no kids yet. Eventually, Isaac is born. And sometime after that, we're not exactly sure when the language would be, Isaac could have been between 4 and 35. That's a small window, right? Somewhere in there, he's old enough to know what's going on, right? God says one morning, you can check it out, Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, here it is again, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, why did God have to keep piling up all of those words? Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Because Abraham is looking for a way out. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take him and offer him to me. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible says that early the next morning, Abraham got up, took Isaac, and they went to the mountain that God designated. As they're walking up the mountain where Abraham would offer Isaac, they eventually get there and we're told that Abraham is ready to follow through. And just as he's ready, God says, stop. And there's a ram who's stuck in the thicket behind him. And Abraham takes the ram offers the ram, and Isaac and Abraham go home. Why did Abraham not have to offer his one and only son? Why at Passover didn't the firstborn one and only sons of Israel have to die when the angel of death went over Egypt. Those homes were just as sinful. Because God offered his one and only son. And so when you read back one and only, you go all the way to Abraham. When you read forward, you go to Hebrews 11. And you read forward, and you go to Revelation. And you wind up in our auditorium this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. It's not your background. It's not your moral do-gooding. It's not your righteousness. It's not your church attendance. It's not anything we bring. It's God's one and only son. You know, we sometimes use that expression Your card's no good here in another way. Isn't that right? If you've eaten at Peter Luger's, you eat at Country Place, and you whip out your Amex card or your Visa, whatever, you put it on the table, the waiter or waitress will soon come and say, oh, no, 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 that that, that card's no good here. But someone sitting at your table could push your card back to you, could reach into his or her pocket, pull out the proper currency and say, your card's no good here. I'll pay the bill. That's what John 3.16 is about. That's what John chapter 3 is about. 
My guess is the first thought Nicodemus sensed the loss and didn't know what to do. Nicodemus, your card's no good here. But a little while later in a conversation, Jesus said, Nicodemus, your card's no good here. I got it. How about you? You trying to pay your own bill? Background, righteousness, church attendance, Bible memory, believe all what the Bible says, try to live it out? Or are you depending on the one and only son paying your bill? Can I just shoot straight? Nicodemus knew more than any of us in this room. He was more moral than any of us in the room. He tried to obey God more than any of us in the room. And Jesus said, your card's no good here. What shot do we have? And then Jesus said, your card's no good here. I got this. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Great love. Great gift. Great hope. All comes down to one question. What are you depending on? Your credit card or what you've earned? Or the card that Jesus gives his one and only son? God's son, Jesus. Only two ways to pay. Only one pays the bill. Let's pray. Father, this story may start out pretty strange. It comes from a different context and a different time with people involved that we don't understand the culture real well. We don't understand the background, but oh boy, the point's exactly the same. And we confess that just like Nicodemus, we're often trying to put enough in an account that we can walk up before you and purchase our acceptance, purchase our hope. We need to hear what Nicodemus heard. Your card's no good here. Then we need to hear Jesus say, your card's no good here. I got this. What are you depending on this morning? That makes all the difference, not just for today, forever and ever. Thanks, Jesus. Amen. 